want you to look again with me, if you would, Mark 11, this story that we're reading. Beginning in verse 3, it says, And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Now remember, he said, Just go here. You'll see a colt. He's tied up. Just untie it. So what happens? Verse 3, If any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him. And straightway he will send him thither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye? Loosing the colt. Now, folks, let's just put this scene into perspective. Suppose that you had a brand new car sitting in your driveway, new car smell still inside, still has uh, under 10 miles on the odometer. The tires aren't even broken in yet. And all of a sudden, these two strangers walk up, and without even asking, they start to hitch that car up to a tow truck. They're going to borrow it for the day. What would be your reaction to all of that? Would you just keep watering the lawn? Stand there with your mouth wide open? Go get the shotgun? I know a few of you that would do that. I don't know, but what I do know is that's what the, owner of this, the owners of this cult were facing. The owners of this specific young donkey, when they noticed that these men just showed up and started to untie it. And in fact, when you read all of the gospel accounts, it's very clear that the owners of this cult, they're taken aback. They were surprised. And all they could say is, hey, what are you doing? Why? Why are you loosing our cult? It's a first century carjacking. So, they said, verse 5, why do you loose it? And it's a good question, and the key to the story was their answer. And the answer, remember, Jesus told them, if they ask, here's what you say, the Lord hath need of him. Look at verse 6. And they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded, they said the Lord hath need, and they let them go. Now again, folks, hear this. If you're back in your driveway and two men are taking away your brand new car and you say, what, what are you doing? And they say, well, we're taking it because the Lord needs it. Would you buy that? Would you say, oh, okay. Take it away. Here's my keys. Take the boat and the trailer too. Would you do that? Well, can I say this? This morning, you should. Actually, you should if. If those two men are Peter and John, if their request was in fulfillment of a five hundred year old prophecy and especially if it was truly the Lord who wanted your car you see folks not everybody would have relinquished their property to two strangers on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago not everybody cared quote that the Lord had need of it and asked for it but these owners did surrender it and the reasons they did, and the reasons that we should, as we noted earlier, present to all of us here today some very powerful truths indeed. Understand this. Our Lord did not pay for this donkey. In fact, He didn't even ask for the donkey initially. Jesus simply told them to go and get it. And Jesus said this, If any man asks you why you're doing it, He didn't say, ask them for it. He just said, tell them the Lord needs it. And take it. And that's exactly what happened. Three truths this morning. The first one that I think jumps out of the pages, number one, is a truth about ownership. It's a truth about property. Because after all, if somebody thinks it's, it's rude 
if someone thinks it's stealing or bad form to come along and just start loosing out somebody's cult. And it's not registered in their name and it doesn't belong to them, it belongs to someone else. You have to ask yourself this question, whose cult is it? Whose cult does it belong to after all, really? In other words, who really owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Who really owns that car that's in your driveway or out in our parking lot right now? Who owns your house, your business, your little child, all your children? Whose cult is it? The first time I started meditating on this story many years ago, I thought of Psalm 24.1. The psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Why? Because the next verse in Psalm 24 says, For he hath founded it upon the seas. In other words, folks, it was Jesus who created that cult in the first place. It was Jesus who created all things, all the fullness thereof. And that's why he told the disciples that the appropriate answer, if they ask about anything, was this, The Lord hath need of him. There's a lesson of ownership here we need. I've mentioned before when I was in the fourth grade, our family lived in Satellite Beach, Florida. It was in the late 1960s and when the Apollo moon program was in, just in full swing and living in the shadow of that, as a, as a kid, it was exciting. And especially for a nine-year-old and everything for a while during that time was space. It was space this and space that. My dad worked at the Cape and did some work as in, in the Air Force for NASA as well and he would bring home certain things Um, little mementos that he would get. And I remember one time he brought home what were called, quote, space seeds. Grow your own garden with seeds that someday they hope to plant on Mars. And I thought, well, that's cool. It went right along with sea monkeys. Remember those things and the ant farms and all that? So I took these seeds. They're just regular seeds, of course. And I I planted a garden, a little teeny tiny, about the size of this pulpit, I think, um, right on the side of our yard. And, you know, I took care of it. Little radishes some beans of some sort, and it was fun. Every day I'd go out and I'd pull some weeds, or most every day, and I made sure the rows were nice and pretty, and I watered it, and sure enough, things started to sprout. And for a young boy, that was pretty cool. All my little space veggies. One day I was out there messing around, and a couple teenage guys, three or four of them actually, and they were sort of friends of mine. We played ball together, and when they saw me with this garden working, I said, what is that? I said, that's my garden. And, you know, for boys, that's like, what? So one of them started making, Jimmy has a flower garden. Jimmy, I said, it's not a flower garden. It's a space garden. That really helped. (laughs) (laughs) Long story short, they trampled on it. They just kicked it out. You know, ha, 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 just completely destroyed it. And I got to tell you, I'll never forget the feeling that I had that day. Inside of me, there was this deep sense of wrong that this was my garden that I planted it, that I cultivated it. I took care of it. I used my father's seeds. And I thought about how unjust that it was. And so one by one, I quietly snuffed them all out that year in school. No, I did not do that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I didn't do anything to them, but I did begin to learn a, a strong lesson. Shortly after my garden was destroyed, I acquired a beautiful refurbished 1966 Hobie Brewer Hawaii model surfboard. And we lived two blocks. You could almost 
throw a rock about a nine iron away from the, from the ocean, just south of Coco. And my brother was a surfer. All my friends were surfers. And I was transitioning from skateboard to surfboard. Everybody did in Cocoa Beach in those days. And on the way home from the school, there was a small little surf shop. These high school guys, they helped me sort of rebuild and customize my own Hobie. It was way too big for me, but it was mine. And I helped glass the thing. I helped, you know, uh, from the beginning all the way to the end. And it was mine for one weekend because it was stolen. And about six months later, I saw it. I saw it on the back on the beach with another kid riding on it. He'd covered it with some hideous painted lightning bolt or something like that, but it was mine. And I knew it was mine. You know what it's like to have something that's yours, that belongs to you, that you worked for or you paid for, taken away. You feel violated. There is this deep sense of wrong when someone takes or destroys, quote, your property. Through all those experiences, I've learned somewhat a lesson about ownership that I never fully understood until Christ became Lord of my life, which is an ongoing process. If in the flesh I become angry, if in the flesh I become indignant because some other human being takes my property or claims what is mine or destroys or wastes what is mine, what does that tell us about stewardship and our indebtedness to the Father, to Christ the Creator? After all, think about this, nothing is really ours. That business that you have, As we noted, that car out in the parking lot or in your garage, that stuff that's in your house, whether it is earned or someone gave it to you, whatever it is, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So that means this. Because He is Creator, it's really His. Whatever I have, it belongs to Him. And because He's your Redeemer, if you're saved, you're really His. So... If you're a Christian today, Jesus owns you twice. In Revelation 4 and 5, the saints around the throne cry out, Thou art worthy, O Lord. Thou art worthy because, they said, Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were and are created. And then he repeats it in verse 5 by saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood. You've been created and you've been bought. In every way, you belong to God. That's twice owned. So if we sense this injustice when someone takes or uses what is ours, when nothing, when nothing is truly just ours, what kind of injustice is it when we take and selfishly use what is truly His? You young people, some of you have talent. The last thing in the world I would want to hear someday is for you on some, some rock concert stand up and say, I got my start singing in church. And use that talent for anything other than God. People say, this is my life. Not if you're a Christian. This is my life. This is my money. Not really. You understand that your hands and your eyes and your feet and your mouth They all belong to Christ. And you realize that God, the Lord Jesus, has every right to come to you and say, the Lord has need of this. The Lord hath need of this. 
Another familiar story for some of you old-timers. I was hitting a bucket of balls one time on the driving range. This is many, many years ago. And this old man came to me. He had to be 85 years of age. He was just bumbling along. And he walks up and he takes my bucket of balls. He picks it up and he walks about six feet away. He puts it down and he starts hitting them. <laughs> Didn't say a word to me. So what was he doing? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he thought I wasn't hitting him very well. And maybe he thought he earned the right. Whatever it was, I had a seven iron. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't say a word to him, but you know I'm reminded this morning that God does have every right to come along at any time and use what we think is ours. And may I say this? Take what we think is ours. Verse 2, the last line says this. He says, You shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. Can I ask you a question? Why is that detail important? Because that little detail, never man sat, that detail is repeated in all the other Gospels. What does it mean the young donkey had never been ridden before? Have you ever tried to ride an unbroken donkey? Try it. Wear a helmet. (laughs) Shin guards. Maybe that's why Jesus sent two men. They don't cooperate. The reason our Lord had no problem riding on an unbroken colt is that he created it. He's the king. He's the Lord. And this donkey knew it. It's too bad some of God's people don't know it. There's a lesson of ownership and property. And beloved, if we could ever get to the point where spiritually we truly recognize that everything belongs to him, all of it, most especially all of us, then you know what, the freedom it gives you? The next time, you know, somebody wrecks your car, instead of losing your testimony, getting angry and, and forming ulcers in your stomach and losing sleep and peace of mind, you can say, Lord, look what he did to your car. If that's truly your heart. Lord, some thief stole your money out of my wallet. There's a lot of freedom for those who surrender to Christ. And there's a lesson of ownership. The second thing I want you to notice, and this is powerful to me, there's a lesson of omniscience. Look at verse 2 again. And he saith unto him, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied where a never man sat. Loose him and bring him. If any man say unto you, Why do you do this? Say to that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him. Now, folks, there are three things at least that Jesus knew about this cult that no one else could have known. And how did he know? Number one, he knew exactly where it would be at a specific time and where it would be tied up. Number two, he knew that it had never been ridden before. Number three, he knew exactly what to say to the owner so that the owners would let it go. Verse four, and they went their way and found the cult tied by the door without or outside, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. Now, folks, hear me carefully. It's a whole lot easier to recognize. It's a whole lot easier to live in the reality that Jesus owns it all when you know and remember that Jesus also knows it all. I'll put it this way. Do you suppose today that the owners of this cult 
knew more about that cult and God's purpose for it than Jesus did. In other words, suppose the owners had said, no, 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 this is my cult. But this, this one's mine. He's not even broken in yet. You can have the old nag out in the back, but this one just isn't ready. Isn't ready? Folks, I submit that never in the history of the universe was any cult any more ready to be ridden that day by that man, our Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know that, but Jesus knew it. And again, herein is a very powerful truth. Job didn't understand why his house, why his health, why his family were all taken away. God did not reveal that to him. It just didn't make sense. But what did he do? He rested in the assurance that God doeth all things well. Job said, he knoweth, he knoweth the way that I take. And then Job rejoiced in the truth of God's omniscience. God knows what he's doing. You think about this for a minute. What did the Lord Jesus want with that cult in the first place? Well, there was one reason. He was going to sit on it. And he was going to ride that lowly beast. He was going to ride it into Jerusalem to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. And then shed his blood. And give his life a ransom for many. In other words, what Jesus needed the cult for was in the owner's best interest. They needed Jesus to go to Jerusalem just like we did. He was about to die for their sins. And in fact, beloved, we need to remember that God always, He always knows and He always sees what we cannot know and what we cannot see. So that, you know, if He ever takes anything, I've had things taken from me. If He ever takes anything, if He ever calls you to something, if He keeps you from doing something you wanted to do, if He changes something in your life, what we're really called to do in the midst of all of that is trust Him. Trust that He owns and trust His omniscience that He knows. God's omniscience is a reminder to us that always He sees and He knows what we do not see, what we do not know. You'll remember on our Wednesday night Bible studies, those you have been coming on Wednesday nights, Jehovah Jireh, Abraham called Mount Moriah, that name, the Lord who sees and knows. This is why the word provision, we get provision from God. You know why? Pro, before, he sees before we get there what we need. He provides because he knows. The word providence, provideo, it means to see before it happens. And that's it, beloved. God sees our need, then He secures our need long before we even ever realize it. You do realize that God had already made preparation. And God has already made preparation for the defeat of all of your enemies. And for all of the enemies of the cross. See, how do you know that, Pastor? The same God who wrote Zechariah. The same God who wrote this Gospel of Mark that fulfilled Zechariah 500 years later, He also wrote the book of Revelation. And guess what? I went ahead and read it. I skipped ahead. And I already know the end. Pro video, providence, I already know that God wins. God's omniscience is a reminder that He knows what's best for us no matter how it appears. Brings us to a third thing. 
For me, again, one of the most powerful truths in the story. A lesson of ownership, property. A lesson of omniscience, providence. Number three, there's a lesson of opportunity. It's purpose. Verse five again, And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosening the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees, and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna, that's a word that means, Lord, save. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Word for word, these people were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. According to Exodus chapter 13, the cult of a donkey was considered unclean. Think about that for a moment. If anybody knew that Jesus, who fulfilled the law, knew it. The Pharisees knew it. The disciples likely knew it. All donkeys were unclean in the Old Testament law. But the first cult, the firstborn, was considered so lowly it had to be redeemed with the blood of a lamb. Let me read it to you. I'm reading from Exodus 13. And every firstling of a donkey thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among my children shalt thou redeem. In other words, note this, the lamb provided redemption for the donkey. The lamb gave the donkey, if you will, its worth. So now let's think about these owners for a minute. Let's think about those who owned this little colt, the firstborn. What good was that donkey on that day to other people? What great purpose could or would it fulfill? So that what if they had kept it for themselves? What if they said no? What if they kept it instead of allowing Christ to use it? What would it be? Just another unclean beast. Just another donkey. But you see, folks, because they were willing and because they were wise, because they did not say, that's mine, it belongs to me. They seized the opportunity, not of a lifetime, not of a century. This was the opportunity of an eternity. Because this is the only time. This would be the only place ever that God Himself in the flesh would ride in Jerusalem and give His life a ransom for sinners. What if they said no? What if you say no? What if the Lord comes to you he says, I want your heart, I want your mind, I want your life. What if you say no? Well, pastor, I'm not really talented. I'm not wealthy, I'm not popular. Folks, this was just a donkey. And the owners of this donkey, we don't even know their names. What we do know is they were given a great opportunity and a great purpose, and they embraced it because it was the Lord. Who called them. Someone once said that Christians are either making trouble, making excuses, or making good. And the best way to live and always make good is to seize those opportunities that come before you that glorify God. 
Think about this. A wild beast tied and bound in a place where two ways met. By divine appointment, two disciples came to that crossroads, as it says, so that first the beast was loosed, after then it was located, and then it was led. And where was it led? It was led to the Lord Jesus, who as the Lamb redeemed him. I don't know about you this morning, but I'm glad today that I was located, and I was loosed, and I was led to Christ. And aren't you glad that now you're in the service of a king? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. April 6, A.D. 32. 173,880 days to the day. To the very day when Daniel prophesied centuries before that the Messiah would be presented in Jerusalem as their king. That was the day. All they had to do was use their calendar. They could mark down the day that Jesus would ride in on a donkey. It's one of the reasons why many of them knew exactly they were laying down palm branches in fulfillment of prophecy. They were saying Hosanna, word for word, fulfilling prophecy. They knew this was the day. On that day, presented on a donkey, we learned that ownership and omniscience and opportunity was on the calendar of God. And in case you don't know it, you're on that same calendar. If you look at your Bible margin at the top or on the side or somewhere, you may notice that this text is called the, quote, triumphal entry. The Lord of the universe, the triumphal entry. Jesus is riding as king on a donkey. To the Romans, the triumph was awarded only to a general. It's the same word, by the way. Only to a general who had slain at least 5,000 men in a battle which he had won. So that when he was welcomed home, this Roman who had killed at least 5,000 or captured them, he rode on a stallion. He was surrounded by warriors who were pulling their captives in these cages. That's the Roman triumph Paul mentions in Corinthians. But this king, this king riding on a borrowed donkey, to the Romans, to the Pharisees, it didn't make any sense. But to us it does. The Lord Jesus did not slay 5,000 men on that donkey. But soon after this, the resurrected Savior, 5,000 men were liberated from darkness to light at Pentecost. That's real victory. That's eternal triumph. I noticed on the news this week, as leaders in Israel were interviewed outside the Knesset, which is their parliament, I noticed behind them there was that huge engraving of that lampstand, that menorah with seven candles. Do you know who prophesied about that very lampstand? Zechariah. In fact, the entire chapter, all of Zechariah 4, is a prophecy of Jesus, the light of the world, the same light who has shined the gospel in our hearts today. And he's about to return and destroy this darkness forever. Have you ever noticed that our hymn is filled with hundreds and hundreds of songs and hymns and spiritual songs? And yet not one of them. Ponder this. 
Not one of them is hateful, dark, depressing, deceitful, oppressive to women, or full of obscenity. Now, hip-hop is. It glorifies violence and pride and abuse of women. The blues, whining about yourself, complaining about yourself, how awful life is. Country music, a lot of depressing songs there. I'm just a bug on the windshield of life. I'm so miserable without you, it's like having you here. Don't roll those bloodshot eyes at me. Billy broke my heart at Walmart and I cried all the way to Sears. These are great lyrics. Mel Tillis used to live in Indian Town where I grew up. He wrote a song called, How Come Your Dog Don't Bite Nobody But Me? Yeah, there's a lot of depressing, dark, dumb, violent, self-glorifying, empty songs in this entire world of darkness. And the reason is that all of it resonates. It fits the heart of man that lives in darkness. But there's not a single depressing song in a Christian hymnal. Because Jesus delivered us from the power of darkness. The same Lord who knew 530 years beforehand at the right place, at the right moment, with the right owners tied to the right rope, the right cult would be provided in fulfillment of God's Word so that the Lord of glory, the same Lord of glory, is already at this moment. He's already ahead of your need. He already sees it, and He's already made provision for it. And one day, He will come again. And with healing in His wings, the Son of Righteousness will appear. The question is, are you ready? Even now, even now, if you're His child, are you surrendered to Him? Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed, please, for no one moving. Just a moment. I wonder this morning on this Lord's Day, you know, <laughs> the Bible makes it very clear that the reason why God gave us prophecy is so that we would know that the Bible is true. It would help build our faith. These prophecies are impossible. Without omniscience, without foreknowledge, without divine wisdom. But they happened. Jesus knew to tell the disciples this is the time to go get a cult. It was prophesied 530 years before. He knew it'd be there. He knew that it would surrender. He knew what it was for. He knew what it would picture at that time he would be riding on a lowly colt, but that the next time he's riding on a white horse. The next time he's not coming as a lamb to be slain, he's coming as a lion. You better be ready for that. Pastor Blalock, I'm saved today. I'm a Christian, but I needed this reminder, this message, this text, this simple teaching in the Word of God about God's wisdom, God's omniscience, property, and purpose. I'm saved, but I needed this message as a Christian. Who would lift their hands through the building? God bless you and praise the Lord and amen and amen. I know I needed it this week. I really did. Some of you in this room are not saved. You're definitely not ready for the return of Christ. And if you were to die today, you don't know for sure you'd be in heaven. You can know it. Look, Jesus did ride that donkey. He did fulfill a centuries-old prophecy as he did many, many other prophecies. He did shed his blood for your sins as God in the flesh 
so that you can be saved, not by your works, not by your church membership, that can't save you, but by your faith in Him and Him alone. Pastor, I'm not sure that I am saved, but I, I, I can tell something speaking in my heart. Something's speaking to my heart, and that would be the Holy Spirit telling me, yes, you need to be saved, you're lost. If that's you today, could we just pray for you? I won't come, I won't embarrass you, but with heads bowed, would you just lift your hands and say, pray for me, Pastor, I want to know that I'm on my way to heaven, yes. Anybody else? Raise it up there really high till we see it. Young lady, I see your hand. Yes, ma'am, and I see yours. God bless you for that. And praise the Lord. We're going to have a time of invitation in a moment, and if God has been speaking to your heart, I hope you'll come forward. Just walk the aisle. Brother Kevin's here at the front. Maybe it's just to pray at the altar as a Christian. Maybe just as a child of God, just recognize, look, your hands belong to Him. Your eyes, your talents, your gifts, your abilities, your beauty, your wealth, whatever you have that's a blessing, it belongs to Him. He created you and He redeemed you. So, you know what? Surrender it. That's the way to make your life count for all of eternity. Surrender it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bless now the invitation and we turn it into Your hands as always, Lord. And I pray, Father, we will recognize that, that You are Jehovah Jireh. You are the God who sees and provides. You see before our need is ever needed, and the, and the ram is caught in the thickets before we even know it. And we thank you. And I pray, Father, recognize that we will recognize that we belong to you, all of us. As your word says, Lord, all of our mind, all of our strength. And I pray we will give it to you afresh today and every day. For these who have asked a prayer, draw them to you. For those who are lost, Lord, especially draw them to you now, please. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.